hope he recovered from the physical enough to <laughs> be able to enjoy the spiritual. I'm going, first of all, this evening to Leviticus 23. This is a very special day in some respects. It's, uh, I know, just the third day of unleavened bread, but uh, let's see, Thursday we had Friday, Saturday, yeah, third day. They go by fast. Tomorrow's the fourth already. But uh, this day is important since it follows the weekly Sabbath during the days of unleavened bread. Uh, here he's described unleavened bread in the first few verses of the chapter, and then he takes quite a little time to uh, go through what I'm about to mention here, beginning in verse 10. Uh, when they were to come into the land, once they crossed the Jordan River and came into the promised land, uh, they were to wave the sheaf, a sheaf that they were to get of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. Now, there have been a lot of arguments here uh, saying that they didn't do this the first year they came into the land because it wasn't their harvest. Uh, and yet, when they came across that river and took over, it became their harvest. And you can show very clearly in uh, Joshua 5 that they did do this that year. So, Joshua 5 explains the conundrum that people have here, whether they will accept it or not. But uh, they were to bring a sheaf of the first fruits to the priest, and verse 11, he'll wave the sheaf before you, before the eternal, to be accepted for you. On the morrow after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. And you shall offer that day when you wave the sheaf, and he lamb without blemish and goes on with a meal offering and so on. Now, there's another question that has arisen over the years, more than once, about whether this was speaking of the uh, annual Sabbath at the beginning of uh, unleavened bread, or whether it was the uh, last Sabbath, the seventh day, the, ho the high days, in other words, or whether it's speaking of the weekly Sabbath. But I think the context here will very clearly show it's speaking of the weekly Sabbath, not of a high day at the beginning or the end. Uh, we'll see that in the count here in a moment. It's on the morrow after the Sabbath, in any case, in verse 11. Now, we had a weekly Sabbath yesterday, and this is the morrow after that, the day after the Sabbath. I'll show you about it being a weekly Sabbath here in a moment. And he goes on down and shows the offerings that were to be given uh, verse 15, And you shall count to you from the morrow after the Sabbath, repeats that again, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, seven Sabbaths shall be complete. So that shows right there that it had to be a weekly Sabbath because you start counting from the day after the Sabbath and you count seven Sabbaths. You don't have seven holy days to count. You only have seven uh, regular Sabbath days to count, uh, to have seven in a row. So it had to have been speaking of the day after the weekly Sabbath during the days of unleavened bread. Uh, Christ, of course, was offered as our Passover at the beginning of the first day 
of unleavened bread or the Passover itself. So it is the Sabbath during that period of time because uh, he is waived for us and these two sheaves may have been waived for uh, Old Testament and New Testament or for ancient physical Israel and spiritual Israel. A lot of theories. It doesn't really say for sure, but uh, it is something we do in the New Testament because we keep these days and we keep the things that they have to do with and we keep Pentecost. Uh, they did in Acts 2, uh, so clearly uh, we keep these holy days, and this is the count toward a very important holy day. So, the morrow after the seventh Sabbath, you shall number fifty days, verse 16, and you shall offer a new meal offering to the eternal. And it was to be two wave loaves of two-tenths deal, a fine flour, baked with leaven. They are the first fruits unto the eternal. Interesting, isn't it? They're baked with leaven. Now, you don't eat leavening during this time. Uh, but this isn't during the days of unleavened bread. This is seven weeks later. You know, leaven is only uh, a picture of sin for seven days a year. Uh, the rest of the time, it is it pictures the kingdom of heaven. Christ explained that... Uh, that the kingdom of heaven is like leaven, and that it will spread through the whole earth. So when it is a good analogy, it means the kingdom of God is going to be everywhere. When it's a bad analogy for seven days, then it represents sin, and it needs to go out, <laughs> get rid of it, so that it so sin doesn't permeate the whole church. So, uh, people sometimes, I think, begin to think, well, leavening is a bad thing. And yet, Christ compared it to the kingdom of God, which is a good thing. So, it depends on which days you're talking about. 358, it's a good thing. For seven, it's a bad thing. And that's why we put it out for seven. Anyway, it represents the first fruits. And so in that sense, I think when you say two wave loaves, uh, it could be Old and New Testament because there are some first fruits out of the Old Testament. Some we discussed just yesterday, uh, Enoch and uh, Abel and, and Noah. So there are some from the Old and some from the New, and this has to represent both, and I think that that's a pretty fair analogy there. Anyway, he goes on down after that and shows that uh, this has to do with the Pentecost. 50-day uh, count to Pentecost. I don't know why that was such a difficult thing. You count from a Sabbath, seven weeks, that's 49 days. And the next day is 50, is Sunday. And Herbert Armstrong got all mixed up over that as to whether you count inclusively or exclusively uh, and so on. But it's, it's so very plain to me, 49 plus 1 is 50. Seven Sabbaths and the next day is the 50th day. Monday would be the 51st day. 
Uh, he finally got it sorted out, but it was a real big problem in the church for a long time. And when he did go to Sunday, finally, uh, a lot of people left the church, even including an evangelist, uh, over that very issue. Oh, it's amazing what can sometimes turn our heads. And I think most sixth graders could figure this out, wouldn't you think? If you just read it and accept what it says, 7 times 7 is 49, 1 more is 50, 50th day. Anyway, this is the day after the weekly Sabbath during the Days of Unleavened Bread that we count from, we count 7 Sabbaths, and then Pentecost is the 50th day on a Sunday. So, uh, I, I like to try to remember to point this out each year when we come to this time when we start counting, and we won't get into that uh, little basket of worms about what if it, the Sabbath comes on the last day or, or the first day. Uh, we've covered that, and Joshua 5 answers it quite adequately. The wave chief cannot fall outside of the days of unleavened bread. Uh, it has to fall within. So if it's on the last day, you go back to the one just before. So I guess I got into it anyway. But uh, people argue, and yet it's very clear when you go through Joshua 5 that that's what occurred. And that was one of those years when the, the, the uh, weekly Sabbath fell on the seventh day of unleavened bread. Very clear in there. And it says they kept it that year. It was the first year they went in, and that harvest had become their harvest. Anyway, that isn't what the Bible study is about tonight, but I did want to cover that so that uh, when he tells us to count seven weeks, we know when we start counting, that's today, and the 50th day from today will be Pentecost. We've already counted it out and got it on our calendars, but I like to mark it. I, I like to, once in a while I forget, but I like to keep track of those weeks because it says count 50. Now, I can count it ahead, or I can, which I do, but I like to count it with it too. It, it gives you a sense of anticipation and excitement that is coming, and as it gets closer, uh, Pentecost is a very, very important festival of God, always has been. Now let's go to Ezekiel 14. Uh, this will be along the lines of where we were yesterday, but I want to show you something here, which I'm sure you're familiar with, but in this context, let's consider it. Ezekiel, remember, is of course an end-time prophecy written for today. All these prophecies were written and some of them were once fulfilled. Uh, some of the events in here have been fulfilled several times. But primarily, they're written as an end-time prophecy. And some of the prophecies were given uh, and have never come to pass. Take Daniel, for instance. So they're all for the latter days. And here he's talking about the sins of Israel. He gets into Ezekiel 16 even and says, Hey, I don't even recognize you. You look like, look like a bunch of Gentiles to me because of the way they were acting and practicing. So this whole section through here is about the sins of Israel. And 
he makes a very important point here, beginning in verse 13. Son of man, when the land sins against me by trespassing grievously, then will I stretch out my hand upon it, and will break the staff of the bread thereof, and will send famine upon it, and will cut off man and beast from it. Now, we can put a lot of scriptures together and understand, as we look at the leaves coming on the trees, that we're very, very near this point where we have sinned so grievously, God is just about to send curses upon our land. And in fact, they are already being sent, uh, a hurricane there, a tornado somewhere else, a big flood in the Middle, uh, middle West, which is destroying uh, untold amounts of food that are going to be needed, and so on and so forth. These things are already in motion. They just haven't reached the point where we're feeling it personally and nationally yet. But that is not far away. But he says, when this comes, though these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, they should deliver but their own souls by their righteousness, says the eternal God. Now he singles out three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, as possibly the most righteous men that lived. He doesn't say that in so many words, but he does leave out a lot of patriarchs. He could have named Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, perhaps, or others that were, in some respects, a lot more prominent in Israel than these three were. Well, Noah wasn't even an Israelite. They weren't there yet. And Job may not have been an Israelite either. There's nothing to suggest that he was. That's an interesting case we'll get to in a little bit. But when he gets to this point, he says, you can't save anybody but yourself through the righteousness that you show. I think a lot of us would like to think that uh, all of our kids are going to come running and uh, that because of our obedience, they're going to be saved. Uh, this may deliver a counterpunch to that thought. I'd love to see mine come running, and they know... A lot. In fact, even my unconverted son-in-laws that didn't grow up in the church were talking. And one said to the other, when things get bad, I know where I'm going. They got food out there. He'd seen some food in this house and around this place. So uh, he's not thinking of God. He's thinking of saving his behind, <laughs> you know. And... I know we are given in 1 Corinthians 7 that little thought in there, which is an important one, that if you have a converted and an unconverted family uh, together in the church, that the children are set apart or blessed because of the obedience of the one converted parent. God calls whom he will call. Sometimes he calls one, sometimes he calls both. And there he said, if, it, if just one is converted, I'll put your children in a protective mode for you. Uh, but when it comes to time for all this to come down on the whole land, it appears that is not what is applicable. This is. Uh, you can only save yourself by your own righteousness. 
He says, if I cause noisome beasts to pass through the land and they spoil it, so that it be desolate, though no man may pass through because of the beasts, though these three men were in it, as I live, says the eternal God, they shall deliver neither sons nor daughters, they only shall be delivered, but the land shall be desolate. Now, Job is an interesting case in point here, and we're going to go there in a little bit. But we'll see there that he was, uh, his children may have been keeping birthday parties, each on his own day. And Job was trying to do something with God to mitigate his anger toward them and save them. And you'll find out that that didn't work. (laughs) So even in that context, it didn't work. And here he says, in the end time, when all this comes down on this nation, on the nations of Israel, you can only save yourself. Neither sons nor daughters, they only shall be delivered, but the land shall be desolate. For if I bring a sword upon that land and say, Sword, go through the land, so that I cut off man and beast, though these three men were in it, as I live, says the eternal God, they shall deliver neither sons nor daughters, but they only shall be delivered themselves. And if I send a pestilence and fury and blood, though verse 20, though Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, as I live, says the eternal God, they shall deliver neither son nor daughter, they shall but deliver their own souls by their righteousness. How many times does he say that? About, what, four or five times, says the same thing over and over. You can only take care of yourself. Now, Ezekiel 33 echoes this, where he says there that the Father will not answer for the Son, and the Son will not answer for the Father, that we will each be judged upon our own merits. Uh, So he goes on to explain that in quite some detail in Ezekiel 33. But here in... 14, he makes a very specific point, and then he makes it over and over again that we're on our own. You can't go in on anybody's shirt tail. Uh, Husband can't save the wife, the wife can't save the husband, and neither of them can save their kids. You will answer for yourself. And I think when God brings the, the remnant you're going to see it split along these lines as well. People, 10% of what was the church uh, that was called, those which are chosen, the 10%, he says he will stir them to come. And I suspect that there will be families where the husband will come or the wife will come, and they won't both come. Because God is going to stir those whom he can work with that have the right attitudes, and you're not going to be able to come just because of who you're married. won't make a bit of difference. It'll be your own merit. And the same would be true. Now, that isn't the final cut by any means. Just the ones that God stirs to come will come to build a temple. And then you would think that all those people would be with it and ready to go all the way to the end. 
But it will not be perfect even during that time. Because when he says there in Matthew 24 that there will be a time when the man of sin stands in the temple of God, that we're to flee, and in that one it's even more fast and furious than the one coming ahead of the northern army to build a temple. There is time in there for them to get here. But in this one he says, don't even go back to the house. Don't go back after anything. Flee to Zion. Get moving. And apparently there, there'll be some left behind, even from Jerusalem in the temple building period. Because it says, the prey that you have accounted worthy to escape. So even there, there's another cut. That's before you get to the first resurrection. There's the third one. <laughs> you know, did I say third resurrection? I meant the first. That's the third cut, is the first resurrection. So, we have to be righteous. We have to follow God very carefully all throughout. And each of us will answer to himself. Now, we discussed Noah in some detail yesterday. And it made me think of this scripture right here about three of the most righteous men who've ever lived. There may be one uh, that God would account more righteous than these three, and that's where Christ talked about John the Baptist and says he was as righteous as they come. So uh, that's New Testament. This is Old Testament. Well, I guess John the Baptist was Old Testament too. Christ hadn't actually started the New Covenant when John the Baptist was preaching, so he died in the Old Covenant as well. But he was there at Christ during Christ's time. And he said that there had none been more righteous than John the Baptist at that point. These three came earlier, and it's hard to find fault with them. Let's go back to the book of Job and, and look at some of these things, because these people's lives are very important, just as you and my life, yours and my life are very important. And as we face these things, I think I tried to make a, a point of yesterday, as we face these things, we have people back here who faced the same things we're going to face. And this is a record of how to handle that by righteous men. When God told Noah you got a hundred years, go build me a boat. He didn't question it, he just went to work. Got the job done. And it all turned out right. And of course that started with the thought that God is someone who is well prepared, prepared ahead, knows everything and how it's all going to work out in the long run. He knew Noah was going to get the job done, didn't he? He already had Noah figured out ahead of time that this guy is righteous before me, and whatever I tell him to do, he's going to go do it. No matter what the personal sacrifice. I, I don't know how Noah was thinking at age 500. Well, he just had three kids there, so maybe he was still thinking he's going to live a few hundred more years. He wasn't thinking retirement yet, I don't suppose, at the early age of 500. He's he kind of middle-aged, you know. 
But nonetheless, he probably had his own hopes and dreams and ideas and things he'd like to do. And God says, well, we're going to take a hundred out to do this. And, but it'll work out. Uh, it's going to save mankind. And sure enough, he got the job done. The animals came. There was hay in the boat. And uh, they all lived until it came to a stop and the waters abated and civilization was started all over again. Didn't work out too well as men multiplied, but that's another story, perhaps for another time. But here at the book of Job, it says there was a man in the land of Uz. Now, we don't know exactly where the land of Uz was. Uh, U-Z would be pronounced Utes in Hebrew, uh, the land of the Utes. I wonder if that has anything to do with Utah and the Ute Indians who lived here when the white man came back after having been banished from here for a long time. So he was perhaps from this very area. But nothing is known about Job except what's within the book itself, other than he was a righteous man, as related in two or three different places in Scripture. But everything personally known about him is included right here, and there's not much known. Uh, I looked up his friends, um, uh, Eliphaz the Temanite, and Temanite, they say, could have been a Turk. They don't know for sure what a Temanite was. You look up Beldad the Shuhite, and all you really recognize from that, he's the shortest man in the Bible. But, uh, but uh, they say, they speculate that he may have been from Edom, or an Edomite, through uh, Esau, which would not have made him an Israelite, but an, an, an Edomite, because... Uh, Israelites' line did not, of course, come through Esau, came through Jacob. And then the other one, uh, let's see, think of his name here in a minute. I had it on the tip of my tongue and now I lost it. But he, he could have been an Ammonite, I think it said. So this area, the land of the Utes, uh, is where this story is set, apparently. You won't find that in a commentary, but I believe that probably is the case. But it doesn't even say that Job himself anywhere, anywhere in here was an Israelite. Uh, the Bible dictionaries and all speculate that he may have himself been an Edomite. Well, I find that an encouraging thing in a way, that he may not have been through the line of Jacob, as an Israelite, but through a different line, that would have made him a Gentile, so that even this man who was a Gentile was one of the most righteous men who had ever walked the face of the earth. And that should be encouraging to anybody who doesn't claim Israelite blood, but to come from a different race. Uh, of course, you could throw Rahab in there uh, as another one who was not an Israelite. She was uh, across the river and in Jericho, and 
and uh, a harlot. And yet because she saw, heard, obeyed, God has included her as a first fruit. I don't know whether she went from that place and lived with Israel and lived a righteous life. I'm assuming she probably did. Because everything around her in Jericho was destroyed, and yet it had been said, you save her. And I imagine she gladly went along and says, yeah, I'm going with you guys. <laughs> but look how God planned ahead right there. I mean, it's just all through the Bible. Here were these spies going into the land. God foresaw that they would be recognized and get in trouble. And he had this harlot picked out ahead of time. One specific one. I doubt she was the only one in Jericho. Uh, if you go to Las Vegas, there's more than one. Jericho wasn't that big, but nonetheless, God had her singled out, and somehow they found her. And she was of a mind to protect them. And she knew it was a death sentence if she was found out. So that woman, for... Men she didn't even know risked her life for them. Now, didn't Christ say, and we read the other night, that rarely will one risk his life or give his life for someone else? And yet this woman was put in that very position where she knew she could die very easily and probably would because it's hard to hide three men in your little apartment with the bed and uh, and not have them found out, especially when there's people looking for them. So did God plan ahead and know what was going to happen and provide an answer and bring this woman through this to salvation? He can bring any of us to salvation if he could do that. Anybody. So she wasn't one that started out righteous, but the, the, the preparations of God and him foreseeing everything and having everything answered, to me, is remarkable. Anyway, there was a man in the land of Utes whose name was Job. And that man was perfect and upright and one that feared God and hated evil. So here's a man who may not have been at all of Israelite blood, and yet he was serving God. God doesn't give us much background or understanding of who he was, uh, perhaps on purpose, so that we can realize that anybody can serve God, whoever they are, wherever they are. doesn't matter. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters, so he had ten kids, his substance also uh, was 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, and 500 yoke of oxen, that's 1,000, and 500 she-asses, and a very great household. So that this man was the greatest of all the men of the East. The richest, the greatest. It's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God, like a camel going through the eye of a needle. 
And yet here was a very, very wealthy man. Now, he was very obedient to God's laws. He kept them all. He wasn't breaking any. And yet, he had a problem. And that problem could have kept him out of the kingdom of God, as we shall see. So here was as righteous a man as has ever walked the earth. And you would think, with all the scriptures about how God will bless the righteous and how he will take care of them and so on, that this man would never have had any problems because he was as righteous as you can get. And his sons went and feasted in their houses every one his day and sent and called for their three sisters to eat and drink with them. On his day, maybe implying birthday, there's only three places in the Bible uh, where birthdays are mentioned. And in each case, somebody died or lost their head and so on. So he sent and called for the three sisters to eat and to drink with them. And it was so, when the days of their feasting were gone about, that Job sent and sanctified them, and rose up early in the morning, and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their heart. <coughs> this Job did continually or constantly. <coughs> His kids were prone to be in trouble, apparently. Now, this is what I was referring to there in Ezekiel. When all this comes down on us, you can only save your own hide. Now, here was Job, who was tra trying to save the hide of his kids. How did it work out? Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Eternal, and Satan came also among them. So the angels, perhaps the demons, but Satan himself was there. And the Eternal said to Satan, Where do you come from? <coughs> then Satan answered the Lord and said, I've been going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down in it. Leading question, where have you been? The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect man and an upright man, one that fears God and hates evil? Have you noticed this guy, he said? He's, he's leading him down a path that he wants him to go down. Now, I would love to go this far, personally, with the story of Job. Perhaps no further. <laughs> but what does Satan say about you or me? What if God asked him that question? Have you noticed my servant Daryl down there? Well, yeah, I bring him up most every day, don't I? <laughs> I'm here to accuse him most every day. Yeah, I've heard of him. Now, here's someone that God said, Have you heard of this one? Now, he is totally sinless. Now, that would be kind of nice for you to be brought up in that context, wouldn't it? But God had a purpose here. Satan answered the eternal and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? 
Have you not made an hedge about him and about his house and about all that he has on every side? Now, obviously, Satan was aware of him because he said, yeah, you've, you've protected him. You've hedged him about. You've taken care of him. Everything's fine with him. You have blessed the work of his hands and his substance has increased in the land. So he was quite familiar with Job. He, he knew how rich he was. He knew his standing in the land. He knew all about him. He says, but put forth your hand now and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. If you just cause him to lose his job... If you can't make his car payment and he loses his car, if he breaks his arm and can't work, uh, you know, whatever, his kids get on drugs and get in jail and he's paying for rehab and, and he's going through all these nightmares with his kids and his grandkids and great-grandkids. I think of my grandfather. He used to bail his two sons out of jail all the time. They're always getting drunk and in jail. Dry County, but they found it. And how much of a pain they were to him. To have to go. He was a prominent man in the town. Owned as much in that little town as probably anybody. And more than nearly all. And was one of the founders of the town. So here's a man, very prominent, well-known, well-respected in the town. Who had two out of eight sons, or two out of eight children who were constantly in trouble over the bottle. And he was a good Methodist and probably never even tasted a bottle. But he had to go down to the jailhouse to get his boys out all the time. Now, that was a pain to him, <laughs> you know. So, he has all this stuff. So Satan figured that Job was about stuff and about blessings from God. He says, you just touch what he has, he'll curse you. The Eternal said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your power. Only upon himself put forth not your hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Eternal. So what he had done is he says, Job has all this stuff. He's well thought of. You can... Take it all away. You can remove all the blessings that you say I've given him. And probably those blessings were from God. Because he had been a righteous man. But God says, all right, take them away. Now you would think, if you were obeying God in every possible way that you could... And you were reading all the blessings that God gives throughout the entirety of the Bible, that none of that could be touched. That those were blessings from God, and since God had blessed you, everything would be all right in your life and nothing would go wrong. Right? So God said, We can have them. Take them all away. We'll see if He curses me. Now, I think God knew Job pretty well and was pretty confident when he said that. Okay, there was a day in verse 13 when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. 
There came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the asses feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them away. They have slain your servants with the edge of the sword, and I only am escaped alone to tell you. Let's notice something else here. The incredible power of Satan. And how quickly he could take these Sabaeans over here and somehow communicate to them that they needed to come take all of uh, Job's animals and kill his servants. They were at his beck and call. Now, Satan doesn't generally talk to people across the face of the earth, but he can influence so greatly and so quickly. God says, take it all away. He says, okay, done. I'll get her done. And while he was yet speaking, hadn't even got the story all out, they came another and said, the fire of God has fallen from heaven and has burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I only am escaped alone to tell you. So he could stir up the Sabaeans, he could also call fire from heaven. Now, when Elijah called fire from heaven, all those priests of Baal tried to do the same thing, and they couldn't. Now, God did not allow Satan and the prophets of Baal to do that that day. But he did allow it this day, and the prince of the power of the air had the power to send a fireball. So don't be surprised if the beast and false prophet have the same powers because this is the same guy that they will be dealing with. So burned up. There's a burnt offering for you. How many sheep did he have? 7,000 all burned up. And Satan also could cause one messenger out of these things to be saved from it. Everybody killed but one. Well, he had a lot of control here. When you think Satan is not powerful, you better think again. And while he was still speaking, there came also another, and said the Chaldeans made out three bands and fell upon the camels and have carried them away and slain the servants with the edge of the sword, and I'm the only one that escaped to bring you the story. And while he was still speaking, these were coming so fast they couldn't even get the story told. They came another one and said, Your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. And behold, there came a great wind from the wilderness and smote the four corners of the house and it fell upon the young men and they are dead. And I only am escaped alone to tell you. So all there, within one day, all his animals were gone, his servants were gone, and his children were dead. Except Satan spared one to come tell him. Now, if Satan got an evil, conniving mind where he wanted Job to find out all at once what had happened, because his goal and his purpose was to get Job to curse God and die. So he had the foresight to spare one in each calamity 
to come and tell Job one upon the other, upon the other, upon the other, what had just happened. Because he was going to hit Job with the absolute full force of it all at once and get him to curse God. Then Job rose and rent his mantle and shaved his head and fell down upon the ground and worshipped. That must have frustrated, frustrated Satan. No end. You know, look what I just did to this guy. And uh, I told God he'd curse him and die. And he heard all of this and saw all of this. And he fell on his face and worshipped God. And he said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Eternal. And all this Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. He didn't let his mind think, Has God forgotten me? Has God died? His God's promises of blessing to the righteous all for nothing, and he's a liar. You know, your mind and the machinations of it could come up with an awful lot of reasons here why God was not doing what God told you he would do. Now, you and I understand that he says, through much tribulation enter the kingdom. We know that he says, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but God will save them out of them all. In similar scriptures, through much tribulation enter the kingdom. We know those. But when you are the one that just had everything wiped away, those are hard scriptures to remember. The ones that are easy to remember are the ones that says, if you'll be righteous, I'll bless you. And I won't curse you, I'll bless you. And then your mind can play tricks on you, deceitful and desperately wicked as it is, and you can turn from God pretty easily. And he says here at the end, the love of many will wax cold, and many will turn on each other and cause each other to be put up to death and think they do God a favor. So the mind can go some terrible places. But Job's didn't. Now, Job had a, I mean, God had a plan here. We'll see God's plan all enacted as we go through this first part of this story and the end part of it. But God was working out something, and what he was doing here was going to turn into a great blessing for Job. Now, Job was having trouble recognizing that at the moment. All he could do was say, you gave it to me, you took it away, blessed be your name. That's as far as he took it. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them to present himself before the Eternal. God isn't done yet. The Eternal said to Satan, from whence come you? And Satan answered, walking up and down on the earth. The Eternal said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? <laughs> Same dialogue. He's headed somewhere again. He's the perfect man, upright, hates evil. And still he holds fast his integrity 
although you moved me against him to destroy him without cause. Now, God allowed everything he had to be destroyed, and God says it was without cause. And yet he allowed it. This is a God whose depth and understanding and faithfulness is beyond our comprehension. What he was doing with Job was for a purpose, and it was caused Job to be even greater than he had been. Does it remind you where Christ said, I'm the vine, you're the branches? We read it the other night. Uh, anyone that uh, is not connected to me withers and dies, but produce fruit. And if you produce fruit, I'm going to trim you, and so you can produce more fruit. So right there, we are told by Christ himself, you're one of the branches on this vine of mine. You're my branches of me being the vine. And he said, I'm going to prune you if you do well. Have you pruned a grapevine? You take these shears and you start lopping pieces off. Now imagine if that were your body. And the legs look a little long and the hands and fingers look a little long. And it needs to be trimmed up. So it could produce more. Now that's kind of a mixing of analogies, I understand. But the point is, we're also the body of Christ. And his body was broken and beaten beyond description. And there was nothing unrighteous about him at all, except your sins and mine. Anyway, Satan answered the eternal verse 4 and said, Skin for skin, yes, all that a man has will he give for his life. The, the most powerful drive we have is to live. Satan recognized that. But put forth your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Eternal said to him, Satan, behold, he is in your hand, but save his life. You can make him as miserable as you possibly can as long as you don't kill him. So went Satan forth from the presence of the Eternal and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his feet to the crown of his head. I think I had a boil once in my life as a kid, I think, on my arm as I recall. I don't remember much about it except it was excruciatingly painful. That's what a boil is. Excruciatingly painful. And he had them on every inch of his body. I don't think Satan overlooked any of it. He said, when he said from the sole of his feet to the crown of his head, he meant just that. There wasn't anything he could do. No position he could take that he wasn't sitting on, leaning on, laying on a boil. Even if he stood up, his feet had them on the bottom. That is misery beyond our comprehension. I remember just having a, a screw sticking out of this elbow where the, the bone had been knocked off. And they put that screw in there. It was a Phillips head screw and it stuck out against the skin. 
And you do not have any idea how many times you bump your elbow in a day until you get a screw sticking out the end. It's constant. So I called the doctor and said, when am I getting this out? He says, oh, I can't come out now. It doesn't matter. He says, anytime you happen to be down here, that was down in Nevada, probably 300 miles away. And I was there the next morning. I had enough. One little spot. And I had enough of it. This is beyond our imagination. And he took a potsherd to scrape himself with all. And he sat down among the ashes. I guess ashes is the softest thing you could find. Then said his wife to him, Do you still retain your integrity? Come on, Job. Look at what you're dealing with here. Are you still going to worship God who's done this to you? Now, I'm sure she assumed that God had done it to him. Well, God did. He just he delegated, but he was the one that caused it to happen. And he knew what Satan would do. He could read his mind, too. Curse God and die. That's encouraging. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speak. What? Shall we receive good at the hand of God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this did not Job sin with his lips. Now she could have gotten to him, or a woman could to a man by saying, you know, just just get it over with. Curse God and die. No. You're a foolish woman. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this, uh, that evil was come upon him, they came every one from his own place, Eliphaz, the Temanite, and Bildad, and Zophar, the Naamathite. That's the one I couldn't remember. Naamathite, they say, was from Naam. Maybe, and uh, through Edom again, perhaps. For they had made an appointment together to come to mourn with him and to comfort him. And when they lifted up their eyes far off and knew him not, they lifted up their voice and wept. And they rent every one his clothing and sprinkled dust upon their heads toward heaven. So they sat down with him upon the ground seven days and seven nights, and none spoke a word to him, for they saw that his grief was very great. Didn't even say hello. Coming closer, there he was, but they could not recognize him with all these boils. And they couldn't say a word. Sat there for seven days and seven nights. This is going on for a while, you know. This is tough stuff. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed his day. <laughs> he didn't curse God, but he cursed the day he was born. Because this was unfathomable to him. Let that day be darkness. Let not God, God regard it from above. Neither let the light shine upon it. Let darkness and the shadow of death stain it. 
Let a cloud dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. He goes on about the day he was born and how he rules the day that that ever happened. He's in such terrible, terrible pain. Where would you or I be in this one? None of us has been as righteous as Job. None of us have had this happen to us like it happened to Job. And yet here was a man who suffered probably as greatly as any human being other than Christ. Now, there are others who suffered great and terrible pain. There's no doubt about it. And some diseases can be very painful today. But uh, this boil thing is just beyond imagination. Now, God had started it all. And then we have lots of chapters in here. Where they argued back and forth and philosophized back and forth and Job said things and these three guys said things and and God had got upset at them for some of the things they said because they were trying to answer what was going on here. And really only God knew what was going on here. Job didn't. He was mystified. His three friends didn't. They had all kinds of different ideas they put together. Like you or me, when we get in trouble and somebody will come and tell us, well, it's because you're this and because you're that, and because of this is why this is happening to you. And we might not have a clue. (laughs) You know? We might have our ideas and our thoughts but we don't know. Something bad happens to somebody. Oh, you must be sinning. You know? That's just the way we think. Job hadn't sinned. But his friends thought, you must be a sinner. <laughs> you know? Interesting. Well, I'm not going to go through the whole book of Job. and We've been nearly an hour here. Uh, I want to finish some things. But maybe since we've been an hour, I'll go ahead and stop there and we'll pick this story up tomorrow uh, and show the conclusion of it and why God did all of this, how he had planned it ahead, and how it all worked out. So you can go to sleep night thinking about boils and we'll address the rest of it tomorrow. Here's the verse.